0: We'll hear argument first this morning, number 97, 282, Beth Ann Farragher versus the City of Boca Raton. Now, Mr. Amlong.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This is an employment discrimination case in which there are two issues facing the Court. The first is whether the Court of Appeals applied too narrow a standard in the application of agency principles to supervisory liability under Title VII for sexual harassment. The second is whether the Court of Appeals erred in reversing the findings of the district court who had found constructive and actual knowledge by an agent of the, of the city, Robert Gordon, and had also imputed constructive knowledge to the city through the
0: pervasiveness of the sexual harassment in this case.
1: The relief that we ask—
0: that, that isn't precisely the two questions in your petition, is it? No, Your Honor. It's phrased somewhat differently. So the second question in your petition you say is basically, should the Court of Appeals have affirmed the district court? Based on the factors I set forth in the petition, Mr. Chief Justice, that there was
1: a pervasiveness that could give rise to constructive knowledge. That should be, be under clearly a ruling standard that there was notice to an intermediate agent, Mr. Gordon, and that there was no dissemination of the sexual harassment policy. Well, what, what do you mean by per- pervasiveness? I mean by pervasiveness, Mr. Chief Justice, that there were eight women who were sexually harassed by Mr. Terry and or Mr. Silverman over a period of four years that's what the record evidence showed and that's what the district court
0: found so pervasiveness means multiple victims then
1: pervasiveness can have more than one meaning but in this case yes it does your honor uh pervasiveness in the sense of Harris v forklift systems could mean one person with kind of a secret pervasiveness without secret pervasiveness a that's- pervasiveness a pervasiveness Mr. Chief Justice, that would apply only to that person. In this case, the pervasiveness is not only as to Beth Ann Ferrier, the petitioner, who was repeatedly and consistently sexually harassed, but was also to seven other women. Now, it is that pervasiveness, Your Honor, that I argue gives rise to constructive notice. It is that pervasiveness, Your Honor, that... Differs from the pervasiveness in Harris. I don't
2: know how. I mean, constructive notice. I I, I I can't imagine how secret pervasiveness could ever could ever give rise to constructive notice. Nor can I. Okay. So you're saying that it was so obvious that the employer must have known about it.
1: Either it must have known about it or was engaged in willful ignorance about it. Did not wish to know about it you can't sexually harass eight women over a four-year period and not
2: expect the employer to know about it the employers downtown in in city hall and all of this is going on across the highway on the beach now is, is it implausible that he would know about it uh, that, that, that that the employer would not know about it
1: uh, not at all your honor uh, because just number one the beach is 1.5 miles from city Hall Roughly the distance from this court to the Washington Monument. Uh, number two, corporations throughout this nation have offices. IBM, for example, has offices throughout the nation, headquartered in New York. You can't say that if there was sexual harassment going on in the IBM plant in Boca Raton, that IBM should not be responsible for it. Here, they were not, here, they did not know about it because of two things. Number one, Robert Gordon, who was a captain, an intermediate supervisor, and someone who should be expected to have carried the message forward to City Hall, declined to do so when he was told by...
3: He wasn't asked to do so. I thought he was asked as a friend. He was told as a friend and asked what he thought as a friend. Isn't that what it seemed from the testimony?
1: No, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, what is in the testimony is that they did, and, and what the trial judge found, is that they did find, that they did hold Mr. Gordon in very high repute. And that's why they came to him. Mr. Gordon testified, however, that Nancy Iwachu, a co below, had asked him repeatedly, what can you do about this? Can you make this stop? Other women had complained to him. Did they complain to him as a friend? Yes. Did that take away his status as an agent of the city? No, Your Honor, it did not. So
3: let me ask you about the third, what you list under C. Suppose the city had had just a fine policy against this kind of conduct, and it was included in the manual that every employee got, and it had the telephone number in City Hall to call when incidents like this came up, and everything else is the same. Would there be... Title VII liability for, um, was it, Silverman and Terry's conduct on the part of the city?
1: Yes, just as Ginsburg there would be. And that goes to the second ground on which we seek to hold the city liable, which is the invocation of the kind of agency principles that are embodied in the second... Well, then
3: what you make, you seem to make quite a a thing out of this, uh, there was no... Um, procedure that was that was well known, um, but now you say it doesn't make any difference.
1: Uh, no, Your Honor, it, it does make a difference because what we're asking in the 219-2D argument that we're making is, and in the Court of Appeals held that to impose liability on the city in those circumstances, that under 219-2D, that Mr. Gordon, I'm sorry. Mr. Silverman and Mr. Terry would have had to explicitly threaten Ms. Ferigger, or to actually use their power to harm. What we are arguing, Justice Ginsburg, is that the dynamic of a supervisor-subordinate relationship gives rise to a reasonable fear of retaliation, okay. so that these women will put up with this stuff.
4: Now, is, city, is that that sounds like strict liability? That sounds like to me.
1: strict liability. Uh, no, it does not, uh, Your Honor. Uh, with all due respect, the, I believe it would be strict liability, Mr. Chief Justice and Justice Kennedy, if we argued perhaps under 219-1 that they were doing this in the course of their employment. What we're saying
4: is that
1: there is liability when they are aided in
4: the commission of the tortious behavior. Well, but I, I inferred from your remark, maybe improperly so, that the, they were aided under the 219-D uh, uh, de- formulation. Because of the subordinate superior relation. Yes, Your Honor. Well, that's strict liability. No, it's not, Your Honor, respectfully. Strict liability is... A strict liability whenever there is a, a superior that harasses the subordinate. a subordinate. Strict liability,
1: uh, Justice Kennedy, is in such instances as somebody convicted of shooting birds over a baited field. Uh, somebody who's shown to have uh, made a profit on insider trading in, in short-swing investments under... 16B of the Securities Act of 1934. Could
5: you Here, give us some examples of, of, uh, situations in which the employer would not be liable? Yes, I can, just O'Connor.
1: Yes, I can. Well, would uh, you? Yes. Uh, one example, uh, for example, uh, was in the, uh, Buten versus BMW of North America case out of the uh, Third Circuit, where the, where the company had a strong policy against sexual harassment, communicate broadly that the plaintiff had herself used before. What we're asking...
5: Well, you have just informed uh, Justice Ginsburg that if the employer had had a strong policy fully communicated, that it wouldn't make any difference. Now, what position are you taking?
1: I'm taking the position, Your Honor, that number one, in this case, there was no policy. Number two, that the existence of a policy is a strong mitigating factor against imposing liability, but that number three... But well, then your
5: answer to Justice Ginsburg was incorrect. It would make a difference if the oh, lawyer had a policy. Would cer- that would be an excuse, so there would not be strict liability.
1: It would certainly make a difference. It would be one of those things to be weighed because the plaintiff would have the burn of proof to prove that the fear that she was expressing was a reasonable fear. What we seek is... Yes, uh, yes, so kind of there is. For example, if a female police officer on the midnight shift complained about harassment, uh, by a sergeant on the afternoon shift, he would not be responsible then.
0: Uh if a Well the, that's because he's not a direct supervisor, presumably. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. I thought Justice O'Connor was asking, for example, exactly. whether with a direct supervisor exactly. would not be liable. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the
1: we can't envision every case. The Butin case was one in which there was a policy that was disseminated and had
2: been used.
1: You're going to have
2: would at least say that all of these cases have to go to trial. Yes. You, you would never be able to get uh, to get these cases disposed of before a full fledged trial Just, as to whether whether the woman had a quote reasonable fear.
1: Justice Scalia, uh, I don't want to say never. I would say that it is unlikely that summary judgment would well, be. Well, when when would it be if if the, all the woman has to do is say I had a reasonable fear? If it could be shown that her fear was unreasonable, but like negligence, the reasonability of her fear. Is something that likely is going to have to be weighed
2: by the trier of fact. Well so the company could have the clearest policy, and, and many other employees could have uh, could have used that policy to stop this kind of uh, uh, intimidation. Uh, but if uh, a particular woman has not used it, she could still have a trial on on whether she was fearful enough that uh, that's an excuse. If she had not used it, and if she could explain
1: why she did not use it. We ask only that an objectively reasonable
4: fear be taken into account. Well, incidentally, reasonable fear of what? Ridicule, retaliation, embarrassment, because I, I assume some of those will always be present.
1: Well, uh, in the cases, in the uh, uh, studies cited, I believe, Note 32 of our brief, uh, there is widespread fear amongst women Retaliation if they complain about sexual harassment. Okay, retaliation. Retaliation.
4: That—that uh, that is to say, uh, demotion and further bad treatment, et, et, et cetera. Yes, Your Honor.
2: It's just women uh, and is no, sexual, no, sexual harassment. I mean, do you know anybody who isn't who isn't afraid of of uh, you know criticizing his supervisor? Precisely, not Your Jumping Honor. Jumping over the chain of command and critic—nobody's not I, afraid I do. of that, is
1: he? I do not, Your Honor. And there, and that's why there is a reasonable fear in the workplace for complaining. About and that's, that's, why, that's why there's an
2: absolute liability.
1: Yeah, there's always going to be reasonable fear,
6: and therefore there's always going to be absolute liability.
1: Uh, no, Justice Souter, there's not always going to be reasonable fear because there is going to be reasonable fear at the summary judgment stage. I'm not suggesting that these cases are going to be disposed of on summary judgment. I think there's plenty of time, however, that the juries will say, This is nonsense.
3: But let's go back to what you uh, conceded, at least I thought. There's a very clear policy. It has been used successfully, the Third Circuit case. So that could go to summary judgment or not.
1: That case did not go to summary judgment. Uh, I think
3: that comes closer to it. Yeah, but you said, I think, you said I think it's a, it could be mitigating, and it, I, I'm sort of a fuzzy about it, you give, on the one hand, you give, have a clear policy, great prominence, but then it kind of drifts off into the wind.
1: Well, Justice uh, Ginsburg, it's going to depend on the, the factors of the workplace. Is the policy enforced?
3: How much power I mean, does... I gave you an, an example of a policy that's included in the manual, let's have it posted on the guardhouse door. Everyone knows about it, and there's a number in big letters to call. And I asked you, and everything else is the same. These supervisors are just as gross. Would there be a Title VII claim against the employer?
1: If the employee could demonstrate that notwithstanding the policy that she had a reasonable fear of retaliation if she came forward. This would depend on... Is this
3: on an objective fear or subjective?
1: No, an, an objectively reasonable fear. I would want to point out to the trier of fact the degree of control that the employer, that the supervisor exercised over the workplace. I would want to point out the uh, other kind of rules they have there. Is she allowed to hire and fire at whim? Uh, I would want to point out his history in dealing with employees. I would want to deal with uh, whether he whether he has the reputation as a bully. Uh, what we're saying is that if the supervisor is allowed to get away with this behavior, that that gives rise to a reasonable fear, Justice Ginsburg. If I may reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
0: Very well, Mr. Amlong. Thank you, Chief Justice. Mr. Gornstein will hear from you.
7: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, our position is that respondent is p- potentially liable for the hostile work environment experienced by petitioner on three different grounds. First, that respondent's delegation of authority to Terry to run the beach, coupled with the failure to disseminate an anti-harassment policy, made the creation of a hostile work environment possible. Second,
0: that knowledge No, of you, you would say that, that alone is, is sufficient to impose liability? That's
7: correct, um, although I, ha- I would have to elaborate on the standard for uh, deciding when it is that the delegation of power has made the creation of the hostile work environment possible. You don't, you, this is not a negligence argument. Not- this is not a negligence ar- argument. Um, the second um, ground is that the respondent knowledge of it should be imputed to respondent because of one of respondent's supervisors knew about it. And third, uh, possible ground of liability is that the respondent should have known about it, that, but did not, because it failed to disseminate an anti-harassment policy. And Me- negligence. That is a should have known standard. Uh, and the is, is it a negligence standard? Correct. And.
6: But it's, it's a, it's a negligence, it's a negligent standard that will always be satisfied if there is no policy. That's, so in it, effect, it's kind of an, an absolute policy standard.
7: No, I, 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 there is a causation issue that goes along with the third theory. Well, that, isn't there a
6: causation issue? Well, causation is on the first theory too, then.
7: There, that, they, that's you correct. Say they made it possible because... That's correct. And on the third theory, it would have been, had the policy, would they have known about it, had they had distributed, had they distributed a policy? An effective policy, so there is a causation issue on the third uh, question. How will, we, how will we ever know that if they haven't distributed a
6: policy? Because we'll, we'll never know how the, the 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 policy, contrary to fact, would have worked. So yeah. won't won't the effect of your third? always be liability when there's no policy
7: just there is there will be uncertainty in many, in many cases uh, and then the question will be who bears the risk of uncertainty in that situation and who's it going to be well I think a, a, a fair argument could be made that the employer of that situation uh, in that situation should bear, bear the risk well, of if, uncertainty. That's, if
6: that's the case and, and, and what we're uncertain about is how a policy that was never promulgated would have worked in fact then the practical effect of the third prong is always to make the the employer liable. Well, there is no
7: policy. Well, if, if if the unless the employer can make that showing, or you reject yeah, but how the how view, how could he ever do it? Or if you reject the view that he should have the burden and place the burden on the plaintiff, a plaintiff can satisfy that burden in a number of ways. For example, in this case, the the plaintiff herself could have testified that had there been an effective policy, I would have complained. And if that testimony <coughs> is believed, causation is that demonstrated. That sounds
0: like running around Robin Hood's barn. Uh, I mean, when we're looking for something that's fairly simple and easy to administer, and that
7: isn't it. Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, but that that is a that is the classic negligence theory, which is should the employer known about it? I I would like. Why, Why do
2: you need it? Why do you need a special policy? I mean, isn't it? You really have to tell somebody that if your supervisor is doing something that you think is wrong or improper, you should talk to your supervisor's supervisor. Why do you need a policy for
7: that? I, I think that the, the problem is difficult enough that in most cases, if an employer does not adopt a policy, they would not be ex- exercising reasonable care. But I would leave room for cases in which an employer could show that it has exercised reasonable care in relationship to this problem. Yeah, but don't you think every
5: employee in the country knows that if they're mistreated, they can complain? to somebody higher up the ladder? I mean, it's not like... Everybody's totally ignorant of the
7: well, situation. Well, there are two two problems. Not everybody knows about it. First of all, uh, Justice O'Connor. But even if they know about it, they may not be they may not know that the employer is willing to do something about it. And that's why the the uh, a policy a clear policy against discrimination that is disseminated to everyone and where the the employer. Well, it's, it's obviously clear
5: helpful to have. But I think uh, we have a case here that requires us to grapple with a situation where there wasn 't an articulated policy, and we're trying to look at what reasonable people know and understand and I would have thought most people would know and understand that if you're being mistreated, you can complain to a higher up but I, I think
7: that returns me to the first potential line of uh, liability here, and that is that there should be liability when the supervisor is aided by the agency relationship in the sense that he is able to impose a hostile work environment because the employee reasonably fears adverse employment consequences if she resists but that, or if she complains. That, that's a form
0: of strict liability, it seems to me, because I think any employee is going to fear adverse consequences from a, from a supervisor, even though the supervisor the harassing supervisor, has not made any threat at all, just by virtue of the position. Why do you laugh at his jokes? I mean, everybody knows that. Uh,
7: Mr. Mr. Chief Justice, I think that when there is an effective policy in place, it has the capacity to remove reasonable fear. And when an employer can show that its policy has all the elements of a good policy, and they're listed in the EEOC uh, guidance, and that that policy has been effectively disseminated to everyone, and that it's clearly understood that the the employer takes this seriously. There's a complaint mechanism. Then the plaintiff would have to show, through case-specific evidence, that, notwithstanding such an effective policy, she nonetheless reasonably feared adverse employment consequences if she resisted or complained. Well, what, I what would that- you do
4: if you have the model employer? He does everything that they can. But he, there is one bad apple, uh, a supervisor, and he offers a quid pro quo. Uh, promotion in exchange for sexual favors, et cetera. Uh, there, is that a completely different case, or is it governed by this same rule?
7: That, that is a different case, uh, Justice, uh, Justice Kennedy. Um, and in, in that case, we would say that the employer is liable. And the employer is liable because there the role of supervisory power is clear. And the employer is liable in that situation. Now, the reason the employer is liable there is the same reason that an employer is liable when a supervisor. Fires a black employee because he has a personal aversion to blacks in the workplace, notwithstanding anything that the employer might have done to prevent that from happening. And that's, that is because, in that case, it's still the case that the discrimination was made possible by the delegation of power from the employer to the supervisor. What if the
2: woman uh, is, not fi- is not fired because, because she, uh, she yields to the, uh, to the harassment.
7: We, provides the sexual if favor request. if it's an explicit request, right. uh, if it's an explicit threat of adverse employment consequences, right. <laughs> again, we would say that the employer is liable in that situation. I, there's an invocation sh- of power.
2: Why is that? I, that, that seems to me very strange. I mean, so all, it would make all the difference in this case. Let's assume, let's assume that, uh, that, 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 there would otherwise be liability on the basis of employer negligence only. Let's assume we were to adopt that rule. Yes. Uh, you say, however, that if in this case, one of the lifeguards had said, "You know, unless you let me continue to abuse you in this fashion, I'm going to assign you to that uh, tower, that life tower, uh, uh, life-saving tower that doesn't have a screen on it."
7: Yes, and we are. We it. are now. We are getting to that. That would be
2: quid pro quo. That, that's uh, correct. Guess, right? and, that, that's, and suddenly everything would transform, even though the employer knows nothing about it. All you have to allege is that he said he was going to send me this other tower, and suddenly it becomes a totally different case.
7: It does, and that's because, in that case, the invocation of power is clear. And I I might add that this is the case the court essentially is going to have next sitting, so I'm not sure I want to spend that much time on it. That is what is at issue in Eller for for the court next sitting. Well, maybe
3: because it's a little difficult mm -hmm. to see where the line is between that kind of case and this kind of case. It means one thing to go off to the tower without any windows, it's in the, is it so different to be subjected to this kind of leering and groping and foul mouth well, every the, day?
7: The question is, has the, that harassment been made possible by the delegation of power from the employer to the supervisor. And the line we draw is between those cases in which supervisory power makes it possible and those cases in which the supervisor is simply taking advantage of proximity in the same way that a coworker would. And the reason that we uh, we hold employer liable in those situations is, is twofold. It serves two important Title VII purposes. First, it provides a greater incentive for employers to root out discrimination from their workplaces. And second, it provides compensation to an innocent well, employee but in,
5: in situations where the harassment is carried out by the supervisor, but there is no retaliation suggested or in fact imposed by the supervisor. he just does these gross things but otherwise the, the employment relationship stays the same. Uh, why do you say the employer has aided? The supervisor in doing it. Why isn't it closer to the co-employee, because, because by the
7: delegation of power itself and by the absence of an effective policy providing the person a way around, there will, be, there can be a reasonable fear that adverse employment consequences will be imposed.
0: Thank you, Mr. Gornstein.
7: Mr. Rossetto,
0: we'll hear from you.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Hostile environment sexual harassment is seldom within the scope of employment. It is seldom within the authority that is given to a supervisor. We believe that the United States Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit properly applied a test that is essentially a test of negligence to deal with this situation. Was
3: is, is firing someone just because of the color of his skin when the employer has a a policy against race discrimination? Is that within the scope of employment?
8: Excuse me, uh, Uh, Justice, I didn't hear the first part of your question. You had
3: said uh, that this kind of thing can't be within the scope of employment because no rational employer would sanction, would allow such a thing. And I said, well, suppose you have a, a bigot running the personnel office. And the employer doesn't know about it. And that that person is making decisions strictly on the basis of race, surely not within the scope of employment anymore.
8: No, that is a, that is no longer a case of hostile environment sexual harassment. It's a case of disparate treatment. I, mean, God, I grew up in a world where most discrimination that occurred was disparate treatment, that people were treated differently because of their gender or their
3: race. Yes, but as far as attributing it to the employer... The employer, in both cases, it says that's certainly not any policy that I authorize. When,
8: when, when, when a supervisor takes what Justice Posner in the uh, Jansen case called is a company act—the uh, hiring somebody or not hiring somebody—that is an act that's separate from the motivation of the act. It is an, it is an act that's an official act of the company, and if that act is tainted by a discriminatory motive or a discriminatory intent, it's a violation of Title VII. It's always been. And and that is the that is the at least the fundamental distinction between a quid pro quo situation or a disparate treatment situation on one side and hostile environment situation I don't on the other. But it isn't
2: because because uh, I think as as your 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 friend on the other side uh, indicated, it's still a quid pro quo even if the person is not fired but but yields and, uh, and 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 gives the sexual favor demanded isn't that still quid pro quo? Uh
8: that is an unsettled question since I believe the lower courts are wrestling at the mm-hmm. present time as to what a quid pro quo violation is. At least uh So you some-
2: think that that should make the difference the 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 the, the woman who is so in- intimidated that she yields uh is does not get the advantage of the quid pro quo rule whereas the one who uh Who's tougher and is fired does right.
8: Well, that, there is a, uh, uh, there is a, uh, there are three categories of quid pro quo. One where the person is fired. That's a company act. That is, if I fire somebody. Uh, because of their gender. That's a violation of Title VII. I don't believe that that principle is in dispute.
2: You're not arguing a- that there should be a negligence test for that?
8: No. When there is disparate treatment
9: discrimination, it's not a matter of employer negligence. Mr. Rosetto, right. may I just ask this question? You draw the distinction because the personnel supervisor, in the course of his or her regular uh, responsibilities, hires and fires people. That's, but why isn't it true that the supervisor, in this case, in the course of his regular responsibilities, is responsible for the conduct that occurs at the beach?
8: He is That's responsible different. for the conduct of uh, the Including occurs at how speech.
9: the employees uh, deal with one another. Well, when that supervisor departs from the scope of the employment, well, uh, didn't principal- the personnel uh, officer depart from the scope when he based it on race rather than merit? No, in that case, he made a hiring decision. Well, here, the, this supervisor made a, a, a uh, employment decision in the sense that related to how people had to interact with one another under his supervision. Why isn't that an employment decision?
8: But the uh, in, in, in the case of hostile environment, the uh, uh, the, the effect of the, on the terms and conditions of employment are as a result of an action that's outside the scope of the employment by the supervisor. In a normal disparate treatment case, the effect on the terms and conditions of, uh, of employment, at least in one respect, is as a result of not being hired or being fired or not being promoted. And that is a fundamental distinction, and it makes... It, it, and it makes the hostile environment cases difficult to fit into the normal my district My question is why mode. is it a fundamental
9: distinction? That's what I don't quite follow. I'm sorry. You, you my question know? is why is it a fundamental distinction? That's what I don't quite follow. Because, because, because in, one in both ca- cases, the, the supervisor is performing his his or her general uh, uh, official responsibilities, but deviates from company policy. And you say in one deviation is outside the scope of the employment, but the other is not.
8: Because in one case, there is an employment action. That is uh, it, that is within the uh, the supervisor's authority. The right to hire and fire is within the supervisor's authority. But so is the right to tell how people behave on the beach. And this is a case where the supervisor itself, himself or herself, is departing from the scope of that
5: authority. Well, but think of the situation where the employer uh, tells the supervisor to run an errand, to drive the car downtown to. Buy supplies for the beach, and on the way, the employee, the supervisor drives negligently and hits somebody. Employer liable? Sure, sure. Not a frolic of his own.
8: But if so, if,
5: so how do you relate what happened here to that concept?
8: Because in this particular case, the activities of the supervisor in question were in pursuit of his own personal agenda. They weren't. In, they weren't carrying out the responsibilities that he had. Uh, Well, his
5: responsibilities included supervising the employees.
8: It included supervising the employees, and and, and there is no question that Mr. Terry and And Mr. Silverman— carried
5: it out uh, in a grossly improper fashion.
8: Well, I I would suggest that there's a distinction between his supervisory actions and the frolics uh, or improprieties and misconduct that he committed— uh outside his supervisory uh responsibilities. We would suggest that the record in this case suggests that most of the things that went on that were offensive uh to the uh, lifeguards at Boca Raton were done outside the normal responsibilities, the regular responsibilities of either Mr. Terry or Mr Silverman. Would it but I take a think difference
3: if if one of the other or both of them said, I'm gonna have my way with you once a week and everything else is the same. Would the employer be reachable more readily than you contend, where there was just groping and leering and foul language?
8: Well, if, if he says, I'm going to have my way with you once a week, there is legitimately a negative implication in that statement that if I don't, uh, you're going to be fired or something bad is going to happen to you. In that case, you're on the way over to a, uh, a, a quid pro quo Uh, kind of situation, uh, that's before the court in Burlington. Why
3: don't we just concentrate on the act rather than, he doesn't say I'm gonna fire you, he's gonna say, you're here, I'm stronger, once a week.
8: Uh, Your, your honor, I don't think it would make a difference in the outcome, it would still be a hostile environment, sexual discrimination for the employer, for the supervisor to say that to the employee. That would that there is. Uh, we believe
3: that the. In other words, if that were, if that were a term and condition of her employment imposed by the supervisor, there would still be no liability well, on the part of the employer.
8: Your Honor, at, at, at the point we're on in the hypothetical, we're only a threat that the employer that the supervisor says to the. Uh, I,
3: I'm not talking about words because there were deeds here too. Okay. They didn't go that far. So let's and, take this case. Where there's no word, just deeds. That happens once a week, and it's a. She describes it as a term or condition, a condition of her employment. Would it not be if that, in fact, is what her boss, her supervisor, did?
8: If there was, if if there were no nexus to an employment action, if it was not a condition of her employment. Uh, it would, it would fit into well, the... Well,
3: that's the problem. Is it, is it or is it not? How do I know? Well, I know the fact that once a week this goes on.
8: Well, we know in this case that, 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 that there was no evidence in the record that the activities that these folk, that Silverman and Terry uh, engaged in was anything more than gratuitous.
3: Well, I'm just trying to find out as far as the employer's liability is concerned, which is issue before us. Whether these are differences in degrees or difference in kind, whether it makes any difference.
8: Well, the degree of grossness or the degree of coarseness or whether it's verbal or, or, or physical ought not to make an operative difference in the outcome. In either event, the, the Title VII works best when a regime of communication is, is created where employees that are the subject of either criminal activity or improper activity or misconduct. Well, I'm
4: I'm not so sure. In the case of very gross uh, uh, misconduct of the kind in the the hypothetical, in one sense, uh, the employee almost has less fear because she knows the employer will stop that. It's these these, uh, less offensive but still gross and vulgar uh, situations where she... Is, is really concerned that the, the employer might uh, brush her off or, or not not care, not ask.
8: Well, in, in this particular case, uh, and it's, it's difficult to extrapolate from an anecdote, as soon as Ms. Wanshu wrote, wrote the letter, something happened. An investigation took place and, and disciplinary action was taken. Uh, but as I am not offering that as as the paradigm example, what I am offering is is an argument from policy that suggests that from an employer's perspective, Trying to find out the sexual harassment of the subtle variety that you hypothesize is going on in the workplace is nearly impossible. A lot of... If you're reading the record in this case... But what
3: is subtle about the behavior that's described here?
8: Well, to the extent that you're in a room and and, and someone grabs a part of your anatomy and and, and does so secretly, it is difficult for an outsider...
3: But there uh, was nothing here, as far as I can tell, that was secret.
8: Well, there were... were, There's a a variety of of anecdotes, some of which, uh, for example a number of the lifeguards, female lifeguards, testified that they weren't aware that conduct vis-a-vis other lifeguards was even going on, which goes to the obviousness of, the, uh, 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 of, of a lot of the activity. Some of the verbal activity was relatively public among the lifeguards.
6: Is that the nub of your argument, that it is, that it is more difficult for the employer to, to become aware of this kind of harassment than it is for the employer to become aware of racially discriminatory hiring? Is that the nub of it? Is that why uh, you, you, would, uh, you would call for different uh, treatment of employer liability in those two
8: cases? That's part of it, Justice Souter. The other, what's the other part? part of it is that when the employer takes an employment action, hiring somebody or not hiring somebody in a discriminatory fashion, the person taking that ultimate action is acting within the scope of his or her No, employment. but that's
6: just a matter of definition.
8: I mean, what you're saying is... The person uh, in your
6: example who who fires or hires for a racially discriminatory purpose is exercising a power uh, that the employer has has given him. But you could just as well define it by saying, no, the employer has simply given an authority to hire and fire for legitimate reasons. So it seems to me that that distinction, which you've stated several times, is simply a distinction that's based on an arbitrary definition that, that you are assuming here. And the real reason, if I understand your argument, is that it's more difficult for the employer to become aware of the harassment than to become aware of the racial discrimination. And uh, you, you said a second ago that that is one of your reasons. My question is, why is it more difficult? All sorts of hiring decisions are made, and they may, they, they may be made very legitimately, uh, even though uh the the two parties the the supervisor and the person hired to fired are of different races how is it easier for the employer in the racial situation to know that something wrong is going on but not in the harassment situation
8: i don't believe uh there is a a, a distinction in in knowledge particularly with respect to far flung employers with operations that are run where hiring decisions are made by supervisors i think as a practical matter there is a there is there is a a great degree of difficulty in ensuring that personnel decisions are made in a manner that are consistent with Title VII. However, in, uh, in, in the case of, of, of an employer uh, making that decision uh, with somebody acting within the scope of, of, of its employment, I don't believe that an employer can define away its Title VII responsibilities by saying, Joe, you can hire and these people, but I don't want you to discriminate against Title VII. And remember, your job only entails hiring within uh, the, the confines of Title VII. In that situation, the law of agency is clear. That Why we, is the situation any different when we get to sex harassment? Because in this particular case, the activity that was engaged in by the individual supervisors had nothing to do with the exercise of their supervisory authority. No, but
6: you're saying your 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 response to my definitional objection uh, was, in effect... Uh, it's, 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 it's easier to define uh, with reference to the prohibited act in the one case than in the other. And, and that's what I don't understand. I don't, know why, I don't understand why the definitional responsibility and the practical consequences of it are different in the race situation from the sex situation.
8: Well, I think if you, under the historic law of agency, there is a, a premise. And the premise is that supervisors can act outside the scope of their employment. And when they do, they're on their own. Justice Han had a bosun's case where a drunken bosun beat up a uh, a sailor in the. Cross- okay, and that's true with respect to improper
6: racial considerations. It's true with respect to improper sex considerations. What's the difference?
8: Well, the difference is that in, in, in the case when the supervisor departs from the scope of employment, he's acting on his own. Well, and
0: if if uh, if IBM or refuses to hire a woman and thereby violates the prohibition against discrimination based on sex, you don't need vicarious liability on the part of a supervisor or the part of the hiring manager. She tried to get on IBM's payroll and did not succeed. So it seems to me you're not talking about vicarious liability there at all. You're talking about liability on the part of the employer directly.
8: Yes, because but the in, in every case of a corporation the employer is acting through individuals and the act of the individual is the act of the corporation. Unless the, the, the supervisor departs from the scope of his employment. If Mr. Terry decided that he was going to begin to steal from the uh from the from the women lifeguards on, on the because they were women. And uh so disparate tra- disparate action with respect to uh, on the basis of sex with respect to the women lifeguards. And he does this stealing. The question is, is he within the scope of his employment? Should the employer be automatically liable to the women lifeguards for the theft? Now you get back to the question. Suppose
2: suppose I'm a hiring officer for a company, and I hire somebody because he's my son-in-law.
8: Am I acting acting (laughs) in the scope of my employment? It depends whether or not uh, the the court will find that that's part of a pattern of, of not Engage in equal equal employment no no, no. Hiring apart from whether there, there's no discrimination okay, there's no, no Title discrimination. Seven
2: involved I'm clearly not acting in the scope of my employment if the only reason I hire the person is because he's my son-in-law well the, if if you assume he's, he's not incompetent qualified. yeah but he's making hiring decisions uh, <laughs> I, I don't care whether he's qualified he's my son-in-law I'm, I, I mean the, <laughs> what's family
8: for right the act precisely <laughs> the act of hiring is within the scope of his employment. Why he hired. Why I, uh, that, That's that the reason we don't let them off the hook when they don't hire somebody because they're a woman or because they're black. Because the act of hiring is within the scope of employment.
9: May I ask another, you yes. get away from the hiring for a second. Supposing a, a company, the supervisor uh, has a place, the uh, workplace is got asbestos in it or it's dirty or unhealthy or something like that. And it makes it an undesirable uh, uh, place in which to work, which causes harm to the employee. Should there be a different standard of uh, liability on the on the principal there than in in this particular work environment? Uh,
8: well, in that situation? particular case, there are uh, vicarious liability ca- can flow to the employer why, by virtue of the condition itself, <laughs> because it's a dangerous condition. Is one of the historic exceptions uh, to uh, that, that creates vicarious liability. The uh, court had a case. 20 years ago, involving feces in a, in a food warehouse, and found precarious right. derivative liability to the uh, to the president of the company who knew nothing about it. The court, in its decision, uh, uh, concluded that it was a, that there was a public health an overriding public health
9: justification for the uh, regulation that created uh, or the, if uh, There was a. It wasn't. The, it was not within the public health exception, but just a general um, dirty place. And well, I suppose most of these do come down to health, don't yes. they? But if it's some, if it's just simply. Uh, unpleasant, you'd say you would not, you'd not attribute to the employer. Well, if it's
8: noisy, Your Honor, I mean, uh,
9: I, I, I which think, actually caused harm. Yeah. But again, you're in, you're in the health area.
8: Yeah, I, I'm reluctant to try to anal- analogize a hostile environment, sexual
9: discrimination. What you're saying is uh, the public interest in, in avoiding this kind of environment is not as strong as the public interest in protecting the health of the worker.
8: Well, from the perspective of the city of Boca Raton, uh, they do have a strong interest in, 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 in avoiding this. I mean, this is a terrible situation. Uh, the, the, the the conduct of these supervisors. Sure, but
6: why is the interest different here from the interest in the race situation or the interest in the health situation? Why is it lesser? That's because I think that's what you're at the moment. I think that's what you're telling us we should find, and what are the reasons for
8: finding. it? Well, hostile environment because of race is a uh, is is is, is I, I would analogize it to this situation, and and I think the same. So the
6: standards that, ought to be the same.
8: It, it, yeah, in a parallel situation, if 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 these th- if the things then, that happened to these lifeguards happened because they were black. Or because they were, you know. Then one, why don't you lose? We don't, it, I'm, uh, Your Honor. I'm suggesting that 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 that, that, that there is at least the lower court decisions do not draw a distinction between a hostile environment situation involving race and one involving sex. All
6: right. Why is the why is the necessity different between a hostile environment situation in sex and a hiring firing decision on race?
8: Because in a hiring-firing decision because of race, there's a company action made for which the company is responsible.
6: Yeah, but why?
8: <laughs> why? why? Why do I'm you sorry, say it's not
6: vicarious liability in the one case, but it is vicarious liability in the other case? The president of IBM does not know when the personnel manager in Pasadena, California, discriminates on the basis of race any more than he knows uh, that a, and a supervisor is creating or tolerating a hostile environment based on sex.
8: doesn't know in either case why is the treatment different. I'm embarrassed to give you the same answer that I I gave you before, Your Honor. I apologize for this, but in in one case, there is a corporate action being taken within the scope of the employment,
9: not hiring for money. May I be sure I understood your answer to the comparative Mm -hmm. two different kinds of hostile environment, one caused by the, the kind of situation we have here, and the other caused by a supervisor who doesn't like... Uh, African-Americans, and he puts them all in the corner. Do you say the same standard of, of, of agency reliability would apply to both of those cases?
8: Yes, that would be I the see. position, That negligence. Uh, the, the employer, in in a case where the supervisor is not exercising hey, responsibility, and your hypothetical was yes. slightly off, but assuming that it, it
9: was not within the scope of employment, Uh, Well, the company has has a policy in both cases, against sexual harassment on the one kind and against treating blacks differently than whites, but the supervisor happens to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan in one case, and he happens to be the lifeguard in this case. Are they they parallel in terms of agency principles? They should be, but if in
8: both cases the employer... Assigns, makes adverse assignments or, 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 the well, I mean, supervisor
9: does it. The people in City Hall don't know about it in but, either case. But
8: the act of making assignments down in the beach was in the scope of Terry's employment. And if well, Terry same did
9: true that, of my, it's same true of my, my black white case, too. It, they would be parallel. They would, they, they would not be parallel. They parable. would be parallel. And, be, and there would not be liability in the, in the racial discrimination context unless there's actual knowledge.
8: For a gratuitous comment
9: made by a supervisor. No, no that's a gratuitous comment. a steady everyday policy of making the black secretary sit off in a dark
8: corner. Well, then now you, know, that, that's, it. I think in the case of the lifeguard and in the case of the, uh, of, of the secretary, right. race and sex, you would have the same outcome. The employer would be liable in both cases. Because oh, but you say liable in both cases, but you're saying in this case your client is not liable. Because the distinction is when I make assignments on a discriminatory basis, I'm liable. When I make gratuitous comments and, and, and do gross things and make coarse comments to an employee... I am not acting within the scope of of, of my employment. And and that is the fundamental distinction.
9: So you'd say, in my case, if if the hostile environment for the black secretary was partly the assignment but consisted mostly of racial epithets and the like, then it would be the same case? Then it would be the same case. Okay.
10: Can you say, what what harm do you do to the fabric of the law? And I'm not saying you don't. But what harm do you do if you say the, uh, the, the policing of the environment The policing of the work environment for a high-level supervisor is precisely analogous to hiring and firing in respect to a hirer. And if you do the hiring wrong, even for personal motives, the company's liable because the hiring-firing decision is the company. And if you do the policing of the environment wrong, uh, the company is liable. Because the policing of the environment is a company responsibility, I think that's what Justice Stevens and everybody's been trying to get at. I think, and and you're saying, well, that would be somewhat novel, but there is an analogy, I take it, in the uh, uh, asbestos area, and is there other uh, harm that would be occurring? If, if I mean, is would the law be hurt? Is that very novel? Is it uh, uh, contrary to other? You, you see what we we believe the
8: objectives with, of Title VII would be hurt. Uh,
10: to the and that's ad- because of your policy argument. That's no, the, because thing, the-, in my, my, the reaction that I wanted to ask you about that is, is that, in other words, the difficulty of the employer finding out, is that a problem with the liability assessment or is it a problem with the substantive standard? Well, that is, know. if you have a tough substantive standard, you risk, let's say, creating too much tension in the workplace. If you have to relax the standard, you risk injuring women or minorities in the workplace. It's very hard to get the right standard. But is the policy problem that you're worried about related to the standard, or is it related to this problem of liability? That's my whole question.
8: I, I think it's related to the problem of liability as a practical matter. And and, and, and to speak somewhat cynically for a moment, if, if, if the law was such that if whatever the, the standard is, the an employer supervisor violated the standard there was automatic liability if i'm an employee in the workplace and a gross comment is made to me but i'm you know i can live with it but all of a sudden one day it dawns on me hey there may be some money here so i let this conduct continue i don't object to it i don't you know say stop it to the supervisor doing it to me i just go on and on and at some point in time i reached a magic moment either it permeated or pervasive whatever the standard you want to use, and I say I drop my charge in with the EEOC. Then you sue, and you recover one dollar. Well, but, this yeah, is what we, happened we, here? We, uh, this, unfortunately, well, fortunately for the city of Boca Raton, this was prior to the amendments in 1991. Now we have compensatory damages, and and at least with respect to private employers, you have punitive damages that are available. We
4: are going to have to address it, uh, I, I think, at some point in this case, uh, the constructive notice by reason of, of Gordon's involvement uh, and by his failure to report uh, could you just uh, comment yes. on your friend's argument in that respect
8: yes with respect to gordon uh, it, it's uh, we believe that uh, that the conversations that occurred with gordon one were not complaints were not made with an expectation that mr gordon would take the matter up uh, he communicated back to the people saying i'm it's not i'm not going to take it up
4: is is one standard whether or not he would have been disciplined for failure to make the report
8: well, I think the standard is whether he had a duty, at least in agency law. One standard would be whether he had a duty to make the report, or was he higher management and can deal with it? Gordon was no, it, it, in no it, position to deal with Terry. It seemed, it Terry seemed to
4: concerned. me that the, the uh, counsel in, in the petitioner's brief made the point, if, he had, if Gordon had known that, the, I think, Terry was stealing money, hmm. uh, I assume he probably would have been disciplined by the city for failure to report that. Maybe I'm wrong.
8: Well, Mr. Bender, when he testified, thought that the lifeguards themselves should have reported it to him that this was going on. He thought that Mr. Gordon should have reported it, but it it isn't. There is nothing in Mr. Gordon in in Mr. Gordon's duties as the training captain uh, of this of on this beach that. Suppose
4: I suppose I knew uh, that Gordon would be disciplined for failure to report theft by Terry, even though Gordon is not Terry's supervisor. would that mean that he should also report this, or is there, does he have a different obligation?
8: No, I think the obligations would be in tandem. I don't believe that... So court, if he has
4: the obligation to report theft, he'd also have the obligation to report sexual harassment?
8: And it, it would, I, I would assume that there would be a presumption that that was correct in, you know, without looking at more facts with respect to the duties and responsibilities set out in the regulations and handbooks what, and, and what training. What are the duties of supervisor? I, I would have thought that every employee
2: has a duty to, to, if he's a loyal employee, to tell his employer about about
8: violations of law that are occurring? Well, there's an expectation and a hope, and I think that was evident in Mr. Bender's testimony, but I don't know that there is a duty a legal duty uh, that is that is punishable in some way for failing to make that kind of report. I mean, uh, particularly... Well, Mr. Ben- didn't Mr. Bender, uh, wasn't he the witness who admitted that Gordon had an obligation to report this? Yeah, he said in the same sense. he said he also thought the lifeguards had an obligation to report it, too. And I th- so I think Mr. Bender was speaking optimistically as a manager speaks about what you would hope uh, that your employees would do. In Mr. The-
5: Rossetto, what uh, difference does it make? in your view, legally, whether the employer has a clear policy about sexual harassment and where to complain and so on, or the lack thereof? How does that fit in? Okay. I,
8: I think it is relevant to the question of negligence. I think it's important to note that we're back in 1985 with these cases and the country's sensitivity about these matters. Well, today,
5: if an employer has such a policy, then, then is the employer protected or not?
8: I, no, I don't How believe the employer is protected. I think the, all, the question in all cases is whether he knew or should have known. Uh, and if, if he didn't know, was the employer playing an ostrich-like? That's a question of proof uh, that would be presented under a negligent standard. In this particular case, Ms. Farragher, in 1990, after she had decided to go to law school, had the policy. Thank you, Your Honor. No
0: Thank you, 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 Mr. Assetto. Mr. Amlong, you have four minutes remaining.
8: Thank you, Your
0: Honor.
1: <clears throat> Justice uh, O'Connor, the... The need for a policy, even back in 1985, is, is exemplified by the knowledge by that time of sexual harassment in the workplace. The EEOC's policy requiring employers to do something had been on the books since 1980. There was widespread knowledge about it. The, the movie, Nine to Five. Uh, people knew sexual harassment was going on. And the pro- and they, the problem with The Court of Appeals approach is that it discourages persons to come forward and, I'm sorry, it discourages employers from having the kind of policy that will bring these reports to their attention. As Judge Joe Flatt noted in dissent, this rewards ostrich-like behavior. It's hear no evil, see no evil, pay no lawsuit.
3: But your position was even if there was a policy, it would make no difference, there'd still be a trial.
1: Justice Ginsburg, my position is that if there was a policy, it would not make an automatic difference. That but it would be a factor to be considered. Now they had a policy. They just didn't tell anybody about it. And in fact, the policy said on the issue of whether or not Mr. Gordon had an obligation to uh, to report the policy, which is found at page uh, 267 of the Joint Appendix, says in pertinent part, uh, he's speaking about the EOC guidelines, under the guidelines, an employer is responsible for the actions of its supervisory employees or agents and in some cases for the acts of others when the employer or a supervisory employee knows of or should have known the behavior. Now, Mr. Gordon knew of the behavior. He had actual, actual knowledge. He did not report it. The behavior of which he knew, Justice Suter, was of just like discrimination against African Americans. It is, the, this is not somebody asking for a date. This is two supervisors, for whatever purpose, engaging in the crudest treatment possible of these two women. Is not merely a frolic, it is the same kind of behavior that were it to have been directed to an African American, were he to have been called these epithets, and were he to have been battered repeatedly, there would be no question that this was discrimination.
6: Well, your brother, your brother says there would be no liability there. He, I mean, he's drawing the distinction, if I understand it, between the hiring-firing distinction, because supervisors at least are authorized to hire and fire, uh, and the discrimination uh, or the harassment situation in which they are not authorized to harass and he says uh, a, a definition of what is or is not within the scope of employment is, 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 is subject to a legitimate distinction between those two cases. What what do you think of that distinction?
1: Just, sir, there is no principal distinction between that kind of discrimination and this kind of discrimination. Well, what about
6: the claim that it's harder to find out it's harder for the upper-level uh, 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 employees, the management, to find out about hostile environments than it is for them to find out about discriminatory hiring, firing. It's
1: especially hard to find out if there's no policy and if Robert Gordon does not report it up. All right, Number that's, one, different, that's a different argument. Uh, the, uh, it is... I do not expect that a Klansman personnel manager is going to announce, Mr. Smith, I'm not hiring you because you're black. So it is. Uh, it is not that much harder for them to find out. What we have here is we have Terry and Silverman through their acts, altering the terms and conditions of the employment.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Amlon. The case is submitted.